I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. And if you're visiting us this morning, just letting you know that we are we're in the midst of a lengthy sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And after 50 or so sermons, we now arrive at Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 52. And these, these passages in Mark chapter 14 and 15 are some of the most solemn and sacred passages in all of Scripture. And you, you, don't, you don't have to have a degree in philosophy or theology or literature to understand the riches of these passages, but you do have to open your eyes. You, you, have to, you have to see what is there, and you have to let what is there sink in and affect and transform your heart. So let me go ahead and read, uh, beginning at verse 27, Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Holy Scripture says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. 
seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word. It's for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would enable us to see the beauty and the grace and the majesty of our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Well, let's, let's dive right in. I'm you know, going to walk through the passage in, in four parts, the first being verses 27 to 31, where Jesus tells his disciples that they will all fall away. Keep in mind that at this point, Judas has left Jesus and the other disciples. So now it's Jesus and the 11, and he, he tells them, you will all fall away. And um, he, he draws upon a word from the Old Testament, from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, when he says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus, the good shepherd, had compassion on those who were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep are fearful, dumb animals, and they require the tender care and guidance and direction of the shepherd. And Jesus, as the, the faithful shepherd, has gathered the disciples into his, into his fellowship, but the time is drawing near, very near, when the shepherd is going to be struck. And what happens to frightened, little, confused, dumb sheep when the shepherd is struck and attacked? What happens is that the sheep, they scatter. They're bewildered. They're confused. They're afraid. They, they're leaderless, and they they don't know what to do. It's a, a sobering reality that, that the disciples are about to be separated from their master. But in the next verse, in verse 28, Jesus communicates the great hope. He says that the struck one will be raised up. This is what he's been doing over and over again as he's been preparing the disciples for this moment. He tells them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered over into the hands of sinners. He's going to suffer many things and be rejected and put to death. But after three days, he will rise. 
And so here, even though the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered, the struck shepherd will rise again and go before his disciples to Galilee. And there he will regather and renew and strengthen them. Peter, however, objects. That was predictable if we've been reading through the Gospels. Peter, in verse 29, he says, Even though they all fall away, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, even if they all fall away, I will not. I have the the strength, the resolve, the courage, and the determination to remain faithful at all costs. Oh, really? And Jesus said to him, verse 30, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. It's a serious sin, isn't it? If if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. It's serious. Peter is not just going to be scattered like a frightened little sheep. He's going to fail spectacularly. Again, he objects, verse 31, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And he wasn't the only one. It says that they all said the same. All, all, all of, the, all of the, these 11 disciples had a, had a measure of self-confidence that they had the courage and resolve necessary to stand firm under trial and to remain faithful and steadfast. I want you to think about a couple things here. Jesus knows us better than we, than we know ourselves. We, we may profess great allegiance great loyalty, great intentions. But Jesus knows our hearts. He knows so often that we are going to falter. And the beautiful thing is, don't remember this coming out of the previous passage when Jesus broke bread and when he distributed the cup. This, this, this is my body given for you. Verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Don't miss the, the, the beautiful aspect of grace in this. Jesus knows beforehand our weakness, our failings, our stumblings, and He still loves us. In fact, That's why he went to the cross. His his body wasn't broken and his blood was not shed for disciples who have it all together. Instead, he, he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin precisely because the likes of Peter, James, and John and all the rest don't have it all together. Weak, frightened, fragile, vulnerable sheep who need a mighty Salvation. 
Let's move, let's move into verses 32 to 42, where Jesus resolves to drink the bitter cup. This is really the, the heart of this passage today. You have this progression where Jesus is with the eleven, and He tells eight of them to sit here while I pray. He's in, he's in, they're on the Mount of Olives at Gethsemane, means oil press, probably an oil, uh, an olive orchard with an oil press in it, a garden, an orchard, and he, and he has eight disciples sitting over here, and then he takes Peter, James, and John with him further in, and then he, he, and then he leaves Peter, James, and John together, telling them to, to watch and pray. And then Jesus goes a little bit further. So what, what you see happening there is, I, w- I want you to see Jesus leaving the eight, leaving the three, and engaging alone and directly with his Father. That's what we need to see and we're, we're, we're coming up on an absolutely key moment in Jesus' life. He has been speaking all along since Mark chapter 8. He's been preparing the disciples for this moment. Jesus himself knew that it was coming. He knew that he was going to be betrayed. He knew that he was going to be handed over. He knew that he was going to suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. He had just said in Mark chapter 14, verse 8, regarding the woman anointing him, that she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And then in, in verse 24 again, this is my blood of the covenant. J- Jesus knew that he was going to pay the ultimate price and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. But this is the moment when all of the weight and all of the pressure, and all of the the experiential reality bears down on him. Jesus, the beloved Son of God, the Messiah, the King, is greatly distressed. Verse 33, and troubled. My soul is very sorrowful, he says, verse 34. Sorrowful even to death. Once again, we can turn to the Psalms to find some some footing for what Jesus is experiencing. Let me just give you some, some examples from the Psalms. Psalm 6, 1 through 3. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 7, verses 1 and 2. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. 
Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Psalm 42, very familiar. Psalm 42, beginning at verse 5, which is actually repeated two additional times. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Cast down, in turmoil. Snares of death gaining their, their grip. Or how about this? This will get you thinking. Psalm 31, 9 and 10. Listen carefully. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. And then Psalm 40, verses 11 and 12. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Now, I've introduced some tension in reading those last two Psalms, which I'll get to momentarily. But here's the thing that we should be thinking about. As Jesus faces this cup of suffering, why, why is he so troubled and dismayed? Is it not true that some of his followers, many of his followers, have faced suffering and death with great courage and resolve? Why is Jesus overwhelmed with sorrow and grief? He, he delights to do the Father's will. He, he, he always did what was pleasing to the Father. And Jesus delighted to bring His gracious, salva His gracious salvation to sinners. He loved deeply the woman at the well, the leper, blind Bartimaeus, the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was afflicted with a demon. The tax collectors and sinners, the demoniacs, he, he loved them. He, he was glad to bring them the grace and the mercy and the peace of his Father, which is what this is all about. Didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why is he so distressed? He is distressed because the particular cost of this cup 
is absolutely horrible and brings Jesus to the breaking point. And he, he doesn't break, but he's at the brink. Because he, here's, here's the reality of what's going on. In the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah refers to the cup or the, the bowl of God's wrath, the, the cup of staggering. In the prophet Jeremiah, it refers to the cup of the wine of wrath, referring to God's wrath and God's judgment being poured out on the, on the nations, beginning in Jerusalem and hitting Egypt and Babylon and the whole face of the earth. In Isaiah 53, says that the, the Lord has laid on the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. You see, the particular suffering that Jesus had to endure is unlike the suffering of his followers. So, from Psalm 31 and Psalm 40, which I read from earlier, the psalmist talks about the fact that his own iniquities have overwhelmed him. Of course, Jesus had no iniquities of his own. But what did we just sing about? He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden on Calvary and suffered and died alone. What happens when you take others' sins and sorrows as your very own? They become yours. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And so, when you think about, think about this, when you think about the Holy One, whose only delight is in righteousness and truth and godliness, when you think about the, the Holy One taking upon Himself the, the reality and the guilt and the shame of all of the sin that He finds repugnant. And he takes all of that sin and transgression and iniquity upon himself and then, he, and then he bears it into the presence of God where the cup of his Father's wrath is poured out on him. It's poured out on him so that it wouldn't be poured out on you. But if if you were the Holy One whose only delight was in righteousness and who, who thoroughly delighted in the Father and He loved His Father and His Father loved Him, what would it be like to be staring down this 
cup and this hour knowing that you're going to enter into the thick darkness where the Father's love is withdrawn. And that the Father that you love and that the, the Father that you know loves you is pouring out the cup of His wrath upon you. It, it, it's hell. And so it wasn't desirable in itself. Doing the Father's will is desirable. Saving sinners was desirable. But actually, actually get, getting into this place of, of judgment and wrath and having iniquity laid on Him and judgment poured out, that experience in itself is not desirable. And He was horrified. So, trusting his Father, he says in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. At that, at that breaking point, he he surrenders himself freely and completely to the Father's will. I want you to think about how profound those words are, yet not what I will, but what you will. Our, our entire problem as human beings is because we operate on the exact opposite mindset. Not your will, but my will be done. That's what turned Lucifer into the devil. Adam into a sinner. Cain into a murderer. David into an adulterer. Solomon into a fool. Judas into a traitor. The temple into a den of iniquity. And that mindset is at the heart of your dysfunction and mine. The mindset that says, not your will, but mine be done. Every human being, without exception, has gone down that path, except for one, Jesus. Finally, finally, Someone to stand in the gap. Finally, someone who would be faithful to the Father at all costs and say from the depths of His being, though it cost an unfathomable, unfathomable price, yet not my will, but yours be done. Of course, Jesus had told Peter, James, and John back in verse 34, remain here and watch. And then in verse 37, he came and found them sleeping. Verse 38, Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm going to make a brief comment about that, and then I'll come back to the, the larger issue there in verses 37 to 41. 
There is instruction here. It's not the main focus, but I do want to mention it to you. Okay? The, the reality of trial and temptation and facing intense difficulties as a Christian believer and the, the temptation to, to getting off track in your life, in your marriage, in your witness, in your ministry, whatever. In your spirit, you may have great desire and determination to be faithful to the Lord in in, in the same way that the the disciples professed their allegiance and loyalty. We will never deny you. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are beset with many weaknesses. And the counsel that Jesus gives is, if you're going to stand firm and remain faithful under trial and press on through temptations, then you're going to have to get into the habit of watching and praying. Paying attention to what's going on around you and inside of you. And like Jesus, prayerfully surrendering yourself to the Father's will. That's a key to strength. But in terms of the larger issue of verses 37 to 41, I want you to notice something. At the end of Mark chapter 13, Jesus said three times, Stay awake. Of course, he was speaking of spiritual alertness. But the, but the literary connection between Mark 13 and Mark 14 is undeniable. Three times, Mark 13, 33, be on your guard, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. Three times. And he came and found them sleeping, verse 37. And again, he came and found them sleeping, verse 40. And verse 41, he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? You know what the gospel is? One one way of, of, of describing the gospel? The gospel is that While everyone else was sleeping, Jesus stayed awake, stayed alert, stayed attentive, and embraced the Father's will. It's no wonder that Peter was setting himself up for a spectacular fail, which we'll get to next week. His disciples were completely ill-prepared because they weren't watched up and prayed up. They were asleep, but Jesus, he was ready to rise up and to meet the trial head on. Rise, verse 42, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's come into Verses 43 to 49, Jesus is betrayed and arrested. We don't need to say too much about this section. It's pretty 
simple and self-explanatory. Judas, Judas, an insider, one of the twelve, comes with an armed contingent from the religious leadership, the Sanhedrin, indicated by those three descriptions at the end of verse 43, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they made up the the ruling council in, in Jerusalem. And in this act of treachery, Judas turns the symbols of friendship, a greeting and a kiss, into an act of betrayal and handing over the Lord. It, r- 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 this might seem like this might seem odd to you. Like, why do they need Judas? Judas's help. Well, remember, this is in a private location and it's nighttime. This is the middle of the night. They needed Judas to guide them to Jesus, and that's what he did. And then he handed them over. You come to verse forty-six, and they laid hands on him and seized him. That is the tragic story of humanity in a nutshell. Those who say, not your will but mine be done, want to put God in custody. Let that picture sink into your heart and mind. That's what humanity has been attempting all along. Verse 47, we know by looking at some of the other gospel accounts, we know that it was Peter, Peter who took up his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. A futile effort at help. Hardly worth talking about. Doesn't accomplish anything. Verses 48 and verse 49 Jesus makes the point that he's a teacher. He's been teaching publicly in the temple for several days. His teaching is a matter of public record. He's not a violent criminal. He's not a robber. It's hardly necessary to come out with clubs and swords, but that's what they do. And as we get to the end of verse 49, I want want you to see a connection. Very important. How did our passage begin? Verse 27, for it is written. How does verse 49 end? Let the scriptures be fulfilled. What did Jesus say back in Mark chapter 14, verse 21? For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus was totally immersed in the scriptures. In the script, his father's word revealing his father's will, and that will he was completely in tune with and submissive to. Finally, we come to verses 50 to 52, where Jesus is left alone in enemy hands. The eleven leave him and flee in verse 50. And then the passage concludes with a very odd reference to a mysterious young man who ends up being seized and leaves his linen cloth and runs away naked. Very odd. 
But, here, but here's, here's the thing. You've got to understand the point, the, the, the picture that Mark is painting here. And the picture is this. All of Jesus' friends, sympathizers, and supporters are gone. And Jesus is alone in the hand of the enemy. That's the point. So, as we bring this to a close, I want you to see Jesus alone. He, he, he's in the hands of the wicked alone. He will face interrogation, condemnation, and crucifixion alone. He goes into the heart of darkness alone. He has disciples, friends, and supporters, but they cannot help him. He alone must drink the cup. He alone must bear the burden of the world's sin and guilt, judgment and death. He alone must give his life as a ransom for many. He alone must shed his blood in order to bring about the new covenant. And he, he alone does it because he alone is unique. Sinners say, not your will, but mine be done. But the obedient son says, not my will, but yours be done. Sinners are spiritually asleep, unprepared for the hour of trial. The obedient son is awake and alert, ready and prepared. Sinners run away from harsh trials, but the obedient son rises to meet it head on. Sinners want to write their own script and do life their own way, but the obedient son is content to have everything done as it is written. Sinners solve their problems with swords and clubs, plots and schemes, but the obedient son lives by his father's words and waits patiently for his father to vindicate him. Sinners greatly exaggerate their own resolve and courage. The obedient son lays his soul bare before the father and entrusts himself completely to the Father's will. Sinners put the obedient Son in custody. But the obedient Son lays down His life as a sacrifice for sin in order to set sinners free from their captivity. You know how we got into this mess? Because there was a man in a garden who said, essentially, not your will, but mine be done. And he ate the forbidden fruit and unleashed sin and death upon humanity. Do you know how you get out of this mess? Because there's a second Adam, a better man in a different garden, who said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Do you, do you trust him? Do you find in him your redemption and your salvation? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would stand in awe of the obedient son. 
the sacrifice, the faithfulness, the love, the payment. Father, we praise the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he gives. In his name we pray. Amen.